Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad you're here for our ongoing series in the Gospel of Mark called On the Move. And uh, today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 5. You know, if you look around the culture of our day, our movies, our books, superheroes and superpowers have never been more popular than they are right now. I mean, from Jedis to Wizards, from Mutants to Avengers, from aliens to supernatural abilities. These themes and characters dominate the stories that people love. In fact, if you look at the decade that just finished, 2010 to 2019, eight out of the top 10 grossing movies featured those characters prominently. These were the dominant storylines of the past 10 years. The other two movies that weren't kind of supernatural, well, they were talking, singing jungle animals, and... um, Dinosaurs brought back to life. So, not exactly nonfiction. We love this idea that there's a power, there's something out there, there's something that's strong, there's a, there's a force, or there's a, a, something that ties it all together. We love it in movies, we love it in books, we love it in shows. But have you ever wondered, where did all these stories come from? And this idea is not a new one. That there are people of great renown, whether they would be warriors, whether they would be the gods of Olympus, whether they're the signs of the zodiac in the sky. You can go as far back in history as you can find, and you will see that there always have been these characters, these great men and women of renown. Where do these stories come from? Where did they start? Is it simply like a shared collective imagination that people throughout the world and throughout all time have had similar thoughts and similar imaginations? Or are there some origin stories behind it all? Are there some old, old stories that people think all the way back to, stories that were passed down from generation to generation that people say, yes, there is something like that that is out there? Because see, we love this idea of the supernatural in our movies and in our books. But if you start to bring it into our Bible, people start to get a little bit uncomfortable. And I think we love the idea of heaven. There's a beautiful place to go when you die. I think we love the idea of a good, good father. It's who he is. It's who he is. I think we love the idea that there are these angels that work for God and they're working on his behalf and they're doing good in the world and they're doing good on behalf of us. I think most people collectively really love that. What we don't love is thinking about, well, if there's a heaven, then there might be a hell, which would be a terrible place. If there's God, then there's probably the chief enemy of God. And if there are angels who are good, then there must be angels who are bad. 
And it gets to be a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit awkward. Because no one really wants to think and talk about that. Well, I have exciting news for you because today we're going to think and talk about that. In fact, I was thinking about this before. Tonight at Fusion Student Ministries, they're talking about sex. I don't know if you guys know that. So we can just declare this awkward Sunday from the beginning (laughs) to the end. This morning we're talking about angels and demons. Tonight the teenagers are talking about sex. And so it's just going to be a great day all around. And for you guys that are going to both, you're especially awesome. I'm proud of you guys. I forgot to make this joke in the first service, though, so you get special treatment here Say it in the rehearsal. I mean, first service, the whatever, practice run. So we're going to dive into this, especially because we've committed to studying the gospel of Mark. And I would say we committed to studying it in its entirety, but if you haven't figured out by now, we're moving very, very slowly through this book. We might finish by the time my kids are in college, I don't really know, but we're moving slowly through this, and we're going to talk today because this theme has been featured dominantly in the gospel of Mark. We've already seen it in chapter 1, today we're going to see it in chapter 3 chapter 5. In fact, I taught on Mark chapter 1, and when we got to this section about the impure spirits, you probably don't remember it, because I totally skipped it, because I was like, I don't think people want to hear about this. But I'm convicted to say that we really should talk about this. I was talking to my wife this week. I told her what the sermon was about. You'll know who my wife is. She's the only one laughing at the jokes. Um, I said, this is what the sermon is about. And she's like, are you sure you want to do that? But we've committed to say, you know, we want to teach the whole gospel of Mark. And so today, we're going to dive deep into the idea of the supernatural. So if you would, turn to Mark chapter 3. We're going to, like I said, read most of Mark 3 and most of Mark 5. And a brief mention on Mark 4 as well. So what's happening here is the thread of the supernatural actually extends throughout the entire Bible. It starts in the Garden of Eden. It's mentioned quite a bit in the Flood which is soon after. It's mentioned in the Tower of Babel. It's mentioned at the book of Exodus and Mount Sinai that there are kind of other realms and other beings, certainly in the life of Jesus, like we're going to see. The letters of Paul and others talk quite a bit about the prince of the powers of the air being blessed in the heavenly blessings. And then the book of Revelation talks a lot about this idea. In fact, it's in Ephesians where Paul calls kind of this unseen realm, he calls it the heavenly realms, And so I think for today, that's the best way we can talk about it, that there's a heavenly realm, which is that which is unseen to us. Then there's the earthly realm. There's nothing special about calling them realms. It's just kind of a way to sort of keep track of what we're talking about, one part to another. All right, so this is Mark chapter 3. We're beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. That's my kind of guy. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. I know the geography is lost on us. That's a long ways. It's all the way from the water into Lebanon. Big region, okay? Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Now listen. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Those last two verses, did you catch that? Mark says, Whenever the impure spirits saw him. This wasn't a single odd occurrence. This was a regular part of the rhythm of being around Jesus, that impure spirits would see Jesus and they would start talking to him. And Jesus would talk back. Is this totally weird? 
Yes, it is. Like, what is going on? Who are these impure spirits? Why are they talking to Jesus? And why are they listening to Jesus that Jesus can tell them what to do? All right, so we'll start to unpack that. Who are they, first of all? I believe, and I believe that the Bible teaches, that these impure spirits are angels that are no longer good. People call them fallen angels. That's not really an accurate term. We'll get to that. But if you've heard that before, that's who we're talking about. These are angels who are no longer good, but they're actually now serving evil. Much of what we need to understand about these bad angels can come right out of passages just like the one that we're reading. You'll see that these impure spirits can make people sick physically, although not all physical sickness is because of impure spirits. They can make people sick with mental illness, although not all mental illness is caused by impure spirits. They can torment and they can make someone's life absolutely terrible. They seem to be able in some way to have a, an, an element, an aspect of control over a person's life. But Jesus has authority over them. He tells them to leave someone they do. He can even tell them, you can't tell your other unclean, impure angel friends about what happened. And they don't. So Jesus seems to have and clearly demonstrates an authority over these angels. But where did they come from? All right, well, if you step out of the context of the Gospel of Mark, the Old Testament talks about this somewhat. It doesn't talk about the impure spirits, these fallen angels, a lot in the Bible, which I think makes perfect sense. The Bible is the story of salvation brought to mankind. That is us. Salvation brought to the realm that we live in. And so what has happened in the heavenly realms isn't really part of that story in its entirety. It's a little bit of like a different movie on a similar topic. So certainly there are mentions that come into our Bible and there are references and there are prophecies, but it's not on every page like you would see other topics like the love that God has for his people. Does that make sense? It's kind of like two rails on the same train track, related but not the same. And that's what we see here. But we can definitely draw inference from some prophecy, especially in the Old Testament. Now, if you've read the Bible a lot and or taken my Bible class that I teach, you know the prophecy is always the hardest part of the Bible to understand. And that's right where we have to go. There are two prophets, one named Isaiah, the other named Ezekiel. They both prophesy about countries kingdoms that were in existence during their lifetime that were incredibly evil. For the prophet Isaiah, it was the empire of Babylon. Babylon was such a dark, difficult, evil place that Babylon is now a synonym for evil. If you are from Babylon in Suffolk County, I apologize. It's not my fault. I didn't name your town. Um, but I think much of the world laughs when they know we have Babylon, Long Island. For them, it would be, you know, more famous than some of the other Long Island towns, I think. And for Ezekiel, it was the kingdom of Tyre, which was a similar. They were very, very evil kingdoms. And in both instances, the prophets are talking about the evilness of the king and the evilness of the leadership of these countries and these empires that led them to be so dark and so terrible and so nasty. And in both instances, they draw references deep into history. Isaiah in particular says that the evil that's running Babylon existed since the Garden of Eden. Well, clearly the king of Babylon wasn't 
immortal. We know his name. We know when he died. So Isaiah, I think, is best way to understand it, Isaiah is saying the evil behind this has existed since the garden. And Ezekiel says it in a similar way. So these angels, at some point, rebelled against God, according to these prophecies. And there was a chief rebel, the one who led the rebellion. In fact, he became one who would accuse God. And so he became called the accuser, which in the original language is ha-satan, the accuser, the Satan. So Satan is not a name, it's a title. I still don't recommend that you use that name, like for your children, certainly not for your dog. It would be fine if you used it for your cat, but otherwise you should not. This is a name that should be avoided. So then, you know, with this came rebellion. And Revelation goes further. Revelation says that it's a third of all angels who rebelled and who were cast out, who were evicted, kicked out of heaven. They didn't fall. That sounds very nice. They were barred. They were banished. And so you have these angels who at some point went bad, about a third of them, and they follow the accuser. Now, when did they go bad? The Bible doesn't really say. There are three theories that I think are all very valuable to think through about when these angels may have gone bad. First theory is this, that the angels who rebelled against God and followed the accuser, this was before recorded history. This was before the Bible was written. And those people will tell you that this is the reason God created earth so that he could show himself to be good and allow a people who rebel, us, to be redeemed and to come back because he is not going to allow those angels who rebelled to ever come back. So he did this to demonstrate his goodness. That's one theory. A second theory is that it happened very, very, very early in the Bible between verse 1 and verse 2. Verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the and the the two realms. What's the next verse? The earth only was formless and void. So they will tell you there seems to be a gap there because we went from talking about the two realms to suddenly focusing on the earth and maybe there's a gap between those two verses for some amount of time. This could have been the time when the angels fell and there became rebellion in the heavenly realms. Or the third theory is that essentially Mankind and the heavenly realm had rebellion at about the same time because both realms existed together in the Garden of Eden. That's why the serpent was there. And then the serpent said, you know, when God said this, I think maybe he wasn't telling the truth. And the woman and the man said, you're right. And they sinned and the serpent sinned all at about the same time and that evil split both realms at once. But all of those are consistent with the Isaiah and Ezekiel prophecy that this was something that happened in the very beginning. And they all arrive in the same place. Namely, that about a third of these angels are evil and that they are present and they are active in this world. All right, now look what happens next. Back to Mark chapter 3, now we're in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside, we probably know where that is, and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Mark lists all 12 apostles. Who does he list first? Peter. You know why, right? 
This is Peter's witness through Mark, right? Good. Verse 20. This is where it gets crazy. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. All right. So Jesus' power over these spirits is causing quite a stir. It's one of the reasons that Mark points to that there are so many people around and there's so much activity happening. And there were two responses that immediately came up. The first response came from his family, and the text seems to indicate this is his actual family, meaning like Mary was there and some of her other children that she had after Jesus. For example, the New Testament book of James is written by a half-brother of Jesus, so James may have been there. And they came, they were worried about Jesus because he's talking to these unseen spirits, and what they essentially said was, Jesus is not well. They were very concerned. Like, this isn't normal. He's talking to things that aren't seen. They're talking back. We're not really sure. I mean, the, the way that it's recorded in the NIV is he is out of his mind. They're saying this doesn't seem to be working. Teachers of the law, they take it much further. They say, no, no, no. Jesus is evil. That what's going on here is Jesus himself, by demonstrating that he's speaking to these spirits, he himself is evil. Jesus chooses to address the second reaction first. He addresses the first one kind of at the end of the chapter, but he really focuses on the second one. And he puts up two principal arguments, and you can read them, they're right in Mark. First, Jesus starts with logic, just straight up debate. He says, wait a minute, you're saying I'm evil, but I'm fighting against evil. I can't be evil if I'm defeating evil because evil wouldn't fight against evil. That doesn't make any sense. Like, oh, actually, it's pretty smart, Jesus. You, it's not your first day. Like, all right, good job. But then Jesus doesn't stick with logic. He goes to theology. And Jesus says this. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of people, they read this verse or they hear about this verse and they get very nervous because Jesus just said, there is a sin of which you can never be forgiven. It is eternal. Some people call it the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin. You're going, wait a minute. There is a sin that can't be forgiven? I feel like this should be made a little bit more clear. Like maybe it should be on the cover. Maybe it should be like on the box. Maybe it should be a footnote on every page. By the way, there is one sin you should never commit because you can never be forgiven of this one. I was in youth group just like you guys, and I remember the first time I heard about this, I was like, oh no, there is a sin that can't be forgiven. What if I did it? This is really, really bad news. And it seems to contradict the message of the Bible that there is a sin that can't be forgiven. What is Jesus talking about? I think the best way to understand it is this. Remember, we have these two reactions to seeing Jesus' authority in the unseen realm so far. One that says Jesus is not well. The other that says Jesus is evil. If you hold to reaction number two 
as your defining statement about who you believe Jesus is, that is the unforgivable sin. To declare that Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, the God of the Trinity, is evil, is the unforgivable sin. Why? Is it because Jesus is like a little bit sensitive? And he's like, listen, this name calling, it's too much. And so I'm going to have to banish you now because you called me a name that I don't like. Not at all. Jesus is a big boy. He can handle a lot, much more than you can throw at him. It's not that. It's, think about this. If you forever permanently declare and decide that Jesus is evil, you personally have rejected the only salvation door that has ever been opened to you. You have said the only way to be forgiven, the only way to be redeemed, the only way to be made right, no, 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 that is evil. And so the reason that sin is unforgivable is you then, the holder of that opinion, have forever turned away from the only source of forgiveness that's lasting and real. And by shutting that gate yourself, you are declaring your own sin to be unforgivable. Now, a fair question is, can you feel this way and change your mind? My opinion is yes. And my example would be the Apostle Paul, because it was once his life's mission to kill Christians and to force them to blaspheme against Jesus that Jesus was evil. That was Paul's mission in life until he was converted and wrote half the New Testament. So I think that the reason this is unforgivable is if a person camps out here and declares for life, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit is evil, then that sin can never be forgiven. Does that make sense? If it doesn't make sense, I would love to talk to you about this more. Just send me an email. My email address is robert at beacon.church. Send me an email. Make it really long, detailed if you could. Lots of, you know, arguments and rebuttals. I love long emails. Just send that over to me. And I'll write you back the same day, probably same hour, honestly. All right? Okay. So, but here's the thing about Jesus' statement. The important part is not the second half. The important part is the first half. He says, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Every sin, every comment, every snarky remark, every stupid thing you've said in a sermon, well, that, that's, that's mine. It all can be forgiven. Every sin. That's the important thing. And by the way, who was Jesus speaking to? Remember? Teachers of the law who said, Jesus is evil. We need to kill him. He was making a very specific point to a very specific audience. All right. So moving on. Then we see the end of Mark 3. Then we have Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 is incredible. Jesus steps into that boat and he tells amazing, amazing parables. You should definitely read it. All right. Mark chapter 5. Can you tell? I'm trying to brag that I covered three chapters in one day. That's the best Mark 4 sermon you're ever going to hear. All right. Mark 5. Here, Mark tells a long story. This is not like Mark. We've been talking about this all month long. Mark is quick. He keeps the action moving. He uses as few words as possible every single time. He's totally my kind of guy. Suddenly, he tells a long story full of details. This matters. Mark is saying in every way he can think of, this is incredibly important. You should read it. So I want to read to you this whole story from Mark 5 uninterrupted without comment. 
Mark 5, chapter 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. This is unbelievable. Jesus travels across the lake into what we know is Gentile territory. He's no longer with Jewish people. There is a man there who was so scary, so out of his mind, so crazy that he's been banished to live in the cemetery, which was an area of caves. They tried to chain him up, but there was no chain or foot iron that could hold him. This was the scariest person that probably anyone in that region had ever met or heard of. Imagine you could hear him crying and yelling in the night in the mountains as he hurt himself. This is a scary, scary guy. Jesus comes, and the text says that he kneels down at Jesus' feet and begs for mercy. I think sometimes we have this picture of Jesus in our mind that Jesus is like a little bit soft. You know, Jesus loves to hold the baby lamb. Jesus loves to hold the little baby. Jesus looks like Ewan McGregor from Star Wars. You know this meme, right? I hope you do. That is Ewan McGregor from Star Wars. But we have this picture of Jesus being so sweet and so kind. He's like a little bit curlier than Fabio and just as good looking. And I'm not saying this that that's wrong. I, I don't think Jesus was nearly this white, I gotta be honest with you. But uh, this is the picture we have of Jesus. But I think, I think these demons, when they see Jesus, they see something else. I think in their mind, Jesus is yoked, bro. Like, they're like, what is happening? Jesus, they were scared to death when Jesus would come because he had a power and a strength and authority that they knew couldn't be matched. And then this man who was completely healed, he was made right, he begged to go with Jesus. Jesus said, no, 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 you're gonna go and you're gonna tell what happened here. And the people from the region were so freaked out they didn't know what to do. They said, all these pigs 
had died. See, I think to Jesus, the, the demons and the spirits were like, can you let us go into the pigs? And Jesus was like, I'm Jewish. I don't eat bacon. So that's fine with me. You can have the pigs. Then all the pigs were drowned. To lose thousands of pigs means a family or a clan probably lost their business. They probably were instantly in dire straits, impoverished. So they had this man that they were all scared of who was completely changed. A family lost their business. And this group said, you know what? They were, they were kind of a reaction number one. They said, you know what? This is not good. It was the demons who realized reaction number three. They said, Jesus is the authority. Now, why does this matter? Why do we talk about this? You know, if you're a guest, you're like, man, this church is weird. Right? Why are we talking about this? Part of it is our commitment to the whole scripture. And this is, in, this is a dominant theme in the Gospel of Mark, and we're not going to skip it. But it's also very important to realize that this does impact the world in which we live now. The time in which we live, being kind of modernist, postmodernist, and also the Western world is, is very kind of anti-spiritual right now. That is not the case in other parts of the world. Other parts of the world are still very much scared of the unseen realm. They're still very much scared of the spirit world. You might be from one of those regions. You might have family, friends, and neighbors who are from those regions. They might talk to you. You know, their house is haunted, and they ask you, can a house be haunted? What do you say? I mean, this happens. This is real things that go on in our neighborhoods every day. So we can know, I think, three things. The first is this. You do have an active enemy. When you mess up, when you go the wrong way, it's not just you wandering off. There's, there are enemies working against you, hoping that you will sin, hoping that you will defile yourself, hoping that you will fail at the mission of God. They create opportunities for you to fail. They suggest in ways that you should fail. Now, I don't think you should cower in fear, and we're going to get to that. I don't think you should be, like, supernaturally obsessed. But there is an enemy... And that enemy has help in working against you. You have active enemies, but two, you have God's protection. You're not kind of floating out there on your own trying to fight the unseen realms. You have the protection of Jesus who time and time again would tell the impure spirits that they had to go. Because you're not simply protected, but remember we read in Mark 3, Jesus appointed the apostles, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach, and they would have authority to drive out demons. Jesus said that we would do things even greater than he did. I don't usually preach that sermon because I don't really understand how that could be possible. But Jesus talks about an inauguration and an ascending out. And this is an authority that has been given to you. This is part of the message of the Bible that we've been given every blessing in the heavenly realms. But there's a prince of the powers of the air who works against us. And it is our mission in life to come alongside what God is doing and through prayer and through ministry to fight against this unseen realm. So I'm going to invite uh, the band to come up. They're going to lead us through the end of the service. And as they do, as we just kind of take a moment for reflection and prayer, you can start to ask yourself, you know, most of the time in Mark, it's translated as an impure spirit. Where are those parts of our life that we're starting to see some of that impurity, starting to see some of that temptation? Where are the parts of our life that we're not really shining the light of the gospel deep enough into our hearts and into our souls, and we allow instead the impurity of 
an issue or of a temptation or of a sin to start to take root in our heart. Because that is the foothold that the enemy looks for in drawing you away from God and off of his mission. And so as you, I hope you're reading Mark on your own and as you read it at home, as you encounter these impure spirits over and over, think, what is the impure spirit that I'm starting to allow into my life, starting to allow into my heart, starting to allow into my mind? And then pray that God would meet you there in a spirit of repentance and purity. So why don't we pray? God, we, we stand here this afternoon and we study your word and, and we're always enamored with its depth and its meaning. And it, it goes beyond sometimes what we fully understand, but we have a trust in you. We know that what you do is good and what you say is good. So I ask God that you would continue to enlighten us to the world that to us is unseen and is foreign, but to you is known. Protect us, keep us safe send us out into the battlefield for your mission in the way that you've prepared for us to do. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus.